Welcome to Talk of the Town, a podcast by the Town FC where we have candid conversations with Bay Area athletes, sports influencers, and individuals pushing the game forward. I'm your host, L. Johnson. This week we sat down with the member of our town council, Eric Toda. Eric is a Bay Area native, marketing exec, and an advocate for diversity, equity, and inclusion. We'll be talking with him about his background, his work in the Asian American community, and what he's planning to bring to the Town FC. Tune in. Eric, how you doing, man? Pleasure to have you on. Now, what's up, Bill? Uh, it's good to be on, and uh, I've been looking forward to this. Yeah, for sure. So let's jump right into it. Um, tell us a little bit about your background, um, your origin story, if you will, and how you came to fall in love with the game. My origin story? Um, well, I'll just take a step back. I am a Bay Area native, um, one of the a rare breed a rare breed, if you will. Um, I'm fourth generation Bay Area, Northern Californian. So my grandparents are from um, Central California Bay Area. Their parents are from Central California Bay Area. Um, my dad was born in Chicago, uh, but was raised here. He was he had to he had to be born in Chicago because that was the only place that would let the Japanese um, back into the United States after the internment camps. Um, and so um, while their home and all that stuff was in the in Northern California, they had to be rerouted to Chicago first, to Illinois first, and then they had my dad and then they came back. And so um, so I'm, I'm very rooted in the Bay Area. I've lived a bunch of places. I've been to a bunch of places, but the Bay Area always continues to bring me back. I grew up in a small town uh, in the East Bay called Moraga. Uh, for some of you who know who, who, who know Moraga, uh, it's a very small town. It's where St. Mary's College is, um, and you know I grew up around a lot of people that didn't necessarily look like me, and I didn't see myself in many places. I didn't, um, I didn't even look for for myself just because I, I just I just figured you know what. I'm surrounded by everybody that doesn't look like me. I'll just try to become friends with everybody, you know, everybody else. And I, I think that did a lot of things for me. I think that um, that made me more uh, open-minded around making a, a, a diversity of friends. Uh, it made me more open-minded around not just looking for myself, which, you know, I think many communities, they typically are very insular in that regard. Uh, but I think the biggest thing that 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 it really made me made me realize is, is the importance of representation, um, which I figured out later in my career. So, um, yeah, it's a uh, it's it's a longer story than that, man. But uh, again, it's uh it's been a journey. Um, I'm you know I'm now a marketing executive at Meta. Uh, I've been at places like Nike, Snapchat, Airbnb uh, in marketing leadership roles and. You know, I find myself in this conversation with with someone as um, that I I hold in very high regard um, for doing what you do, uh, doing what you do with Benno and and what what we hope to achieve with the town. You know, I think it's uh, I think it's incredibly admirable. It's what I like to call, at least for me personally, it's a love letter uh, to the East Bay, which I've been looking for um, my entire life and my career to try to do and try to accomplish. And, and yeah, I'm just excited to be on the journey with you all. No, for sure. And we're 
definitely appreciate having you. Um, appreciate you, you know, coming along with us on this crazy journey. Um, <laughs> as few of you may know, building a sports team from scratch is not easy at all. So definitely takes a lot of trust, takes a lot of um, vision and ambition as well. Um, and I love what you said, a, a love letter to the East Bay. I think that's dope. Like, I might have to adopt that. Please do. Please do. You know, the East Bay typically is um, the sister, obviously, to San Francisco or even to San Jose. Um, the East Bay sometimes doesn't have a um, a personality to it just because it's so expansive um, mm -hmm. or people just think it's Oakland. Um, the East Bay is vast. It's vast. It's diverse. And um, I remember... And I'll always remember, I'll always do this. I'll always rep the Bay Area. Don't don't get me wrong, but I'll rep the East Bay uh, as hard as humanly possible, no matter where I go in this world. For sure, for sure. Um, so you talked a little bit about your life growing up, um, but what role does sports and specifically soccer play in your upbringing and some of the lessons that you may have learned along the way? Sports is was extremely important to me. It's actually one of the reasons why I don't think I got very good grades in school um, because I was so focused in, in, in playing sports. Um, my mother can attest to that. Um, I just loved it so much. It was it was really one of the only only things that I was truly truly good at um, was sports. And I for those of you listening, I want to make sure you knew you know this. I'm five eight uh, on the smaller side. And you can imagine as a kid, I was probably under you know, four feet or about four feet. And when I say it was the only thing I was good at, it was the only thing I felt I was good at. Whether or not I was actually good at is you know, to be debated, but it was always something that really interested me. I, it wasn't necessarily about me stretching into my capabilities as an athlete. It was more for the game and sportsmanship of it. I loved having fun. I still do. Um, and one of those games and one of those sports uh, was soccer. And this is actually the first time I remember talking about this. Um, I, and when I was five years old, I got into an accident in which a stick uh, went through my left eye, uh, causing me to lose all sight in my left eye. And prior to that, I loved baseball. Absolutely loved it. I thought it was the coolest sport ever. And when you lose your left eye as a right-handed hitter, you can't see the ball anymore, especially when you're batting. And so I had to, again, you're five years old, um, but I couldn't play baseball ever uh, for the rest of my life. Uh, depth perception was, was, was still shaky for me. For a whole year, I actually had to wear an eye patch like a pirate, um, which I know my cousins always, always, always make fun of me about. But one of the games and one of the sports that I picked up after I couldn't play baseball anymore with soccer. And I was a six, seven year old and growing up in Moraga, soccer is extremely big. You have these vast fields, but well manicured fields out here at these schools. And I feel like everybody plays soccer here. That is like the, that is like the suburban, like Saturday morning vibe. You know what I mean? And I'm talking proper orange slices, Capri Suns, you know, the whole joint the whole joint. And I loved it because all my friends did it and we all wanted to be on the same team. And some of the earliest pictures of me playing sports was playing soccer, but I loved it because I just loved kicking the ball really, really hard. No strategy involved, 
uh, really no strategy involved. But over time, I realized that I was fast. I was I was on the smaller side, but um, God bless me with these uh, with, with 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 some tree trunks. Um, I like to I like to give credit to my to, to my Filipino mother for that one. Um, you know, she 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 gave me some strong legs, and I could run fast, I could kick fast, and I was stable. So when I used to get bumped while dribbling the ball, I wouldn't fall. Um, and I played midfield most of the time, defense not a ton, uh, <laughs> mostly on the offense because I was hyper aggressive, and and I just remember thinking in my head. In many ways, in the way I grew up, I did not fit in in many ways, right? My skin color, the way I look, uh, the fact that I wasn't super rich like everybody else in the town that I grew up in, um, the fact that I was like a handful of Asian people in, in my classes. But on the soccer field, that doesn't matter, right? And the soccer field was one of the one places where the coaches were always like, Eric, you're in. Eric, go. Eric, go, right? And they, they I felt seen. I felt um, embraced. I felt recognized, um, not for who I was or what I looked like. And again, I'm just like seven, eight, nine, ten, because you don't really think about it back then. But you feel the sense of belonging. You feel the sense that someone's depending on you. In in times in which that didn't happen anywhere else in your life, and so I loved the game, not just because. I was mildly good at it and I felt like I had a body for it. Um, but I loved the game because it was one of the, one of the sports um, and I've played basketball and football and all that. It was one of the sports where I knew, I knew I was going to be recognized for my athletic ability. And that, you know, that didn't take me very far, but what it did is instilled a sense of confidence in me that I can find my space if I just look hard enough right? I, I can find my space. I, I can achieve something and I can work hard at it. And people will see me way past, you know, what we see on face value. And so soccer has played a tremendous part of my life. It was, um, I played in high school and then, and that was kind of like the ceiling for me. <laughs> um, but again, the lessons that I've learned from soccer, um, are deeply ingrained in me, um, from a young age. And that's actually a, a very good segue as well. Um, you mentioned, you know, playing in high school, being the peak of your athletic or soccer career, but, you know, having those lessons um, as you transition into the corporate world, you mentioned having worked for Nike and Meta, some of these huge corporations. Mm -hmm. um, talk about how your experience in sport helped you navigate the corporate space. You know, just an, I mean, I've actually never been asked this one either. Um, you, you got some good ones, Al. Um, you know, if I really, really think about it, really, really think about it, sport gave me a lot of confidence to, to sometimes be who I, who I wanted to be. Mm -hmm. And in many cases, outside of sport, I had to conform. I had to be really good at math and I, I'm really bad at math. I had to... <laughs> be really smart and get good grades. And I didn't. Um, I barely graduated high school. Sport has always been more of an equalizer for me that I know I'm better than, than a lot of people. Um, you know, basketball ultimately became my sport over time, but soccer uh, played a big, 
played a big role for me, especially in the fall. Um, and what I learned from that is a competitive edge that I didn't necessarily have before that, or even outside of that, it, it, it developed in me a, I would, I would say an understanding that I could find my edge. I could find my angle in every sense of the word. So the way I relate it to how I've operated in the corporate world is there's an angle in any way you in any way you think about it to accomplish what you want. What I mean by that is, you know, you're about 40 yards out and you got probably like a curved kick into the goal, right? Goalie's on the left side. You got you got kind of a window on the right side. You have to kick it in a way that turns the ball that accounts for all these different things. And if you can accomplish that, you can certainly see yourself as a VP so long as you play the angle, so long as you understand the route, so long as you understand the other things that you need to account for. You need to have the vision. And I think that's what sport has really taught me is to have the vision to see things play out and know where you're uniquely capable of what you're uniquely capable of doing to achieve that vision. And I think whether it's, again, you know, a corner kick trying to curve it, which, I mean, back in the day, I could, I could, I could round that ball real nice. Um, or whether it's draining a, a, like a long distance three or whether it's hitting a wide receiver on a post route, you know, I, I knew going into the corporate world that angles exist. It's mm-hmm. not different. It's not much different than sports. And so that I was willing to be proven wrong, but I never have because I continue to find the angle. I continue to find the opportunity. And it's like a running back looking for a little bit of daylight. You know what I mean? Like the minute that you see that daylight, you hit it. And I think that develops an opportunistic point of view in your head for you to spot opportunities, justify opportunities, have a good gut feeling for, you know, for, for how you can achieve them. And yeah. that connection point, I think that unless you have played sports and unless you have been in the corporate world to tie those two together, you rarely see. But the people that you do see succeed many times, you ask them what sports you play, in, what sports you play when you're younger, and they'll tell you. And they probably were really good at it because the connection is so th- is so thick there. It's so thick, yeah. and you're just like, oh, I see it. I see it. If you're good. If you're good at spotting the opportunity, you'll definitely be good at spotting the opportunity in sport and and in the, and in the business world. Yeah, no, for sure, it's definitely great, great advice. Um, I really love the 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 mention of finding those angles to mm-hmm. to be able to achieve what you need to achieve. Um, and you know, having you having worked at these large large Fortune 500 companies, you know, primarily in marketing roles, what are some lessons or even life hacks that you've picked up along the way to kind of help you navigate those spaces? It's so simple. It's so simple. It's, you know, a lot of people have asked me that one. They're like, well, what's the secret, Eric? Or what's like the hack? Right. And I was like, oh, you want to know the secret, huh? You want another hack? <laughs> Let me, I'll give it to you straight. Um, the number one thing, well, well, here's the thing, right? Um, I walk into Facebook the very first time around in, in 2008. Everyone's from Stanford, everyone's from Harvard, Yale you know, MIT, the best of the best schools. I went to University of Hawaii. Um, so I already felt like I didn't belong. Um, mm-hmm. I somehow snuck in, right? But you realize when you sit down at the computer 
and everybody next to you was a valedictorian or they're top of their class, you realize they operate pretty similarly. They're going to get, they're going to get the job done. They're going to figure out the solutions pretty fast. But one of the things that I understood that could set me apart was, wasn't just working hard. It was through every interaction I ever had with anybody, anybody at all, doesn't matter if they're lower than me or higher than me. I always left the interact. I always left the conversation with, Hey, if I could ever be helpful, let me know. Like if I could ever be helpful to you, let me know. And whether that's again, someone lower than me, they'll take you up on it. Like, Oh, Eric, can you help me out with this? Or, you know, I, I have a side project or, you know, can you, you know, help advocate for this, but someone higher than you, ah, they may not respond. They may not care that you said that. But the one time that someone's like, you know what, Eric, you can't help me out. Can you do this? Can you, you know, can you do this project for me? I know it's outside of what you normally do, but if you could do this project for me, that'd be great. And then you excel. That's the opportunity. That's that little hole in the goal that you're just like, great, I got it, right? And you achieve that. All of a sudden, you've built equity with that person that that took you that took you for your word. And then they come back to you, and they come back to you again, come back to you again, and then eventually they're like, well. You're just my person. You're my person to get this done. And you find yourself opening up so many opportunities, so many doors. And a lot of people fail to do that. Just what I just said is to ask how they can be helpful. A lot of people treat a conversation in a transaction. Hey, this is great. This is what I got out of it. This is what you got out of it. Okay, see you. Bye. Life is not about transactions. Life is about the follow through. It's exactly what we, everybody always talks about, literally any sport, any sport, right? If you take an action, you follow through always, right? You don't just kick it halfway. Your kick has to go up and you have to, and you have to be able to follow through on that. When you shoot a, when you shoot a three pointer, you follow through and get your rebound because your odds are you're probably going to miss, right? The follow through, well, that's more, it's more of a me thing. Um, (laughs) The follow through though of saying, hey, if I could be ever be helpful, let me know, is what sets you apart from literally every single person. And you would be surprised how many people don't ask that question. And you'd be surprised how many people don't actually want to help um, after a conversation. They just want to take the value I, right, right. right then and there. And so I wouldn't necessarily say it's a hack. It's more like, hey, this is just good business. But the reality is the more people I teach about this, the more people I open their minds about this, the more helpful business can become less transactional, but also the better your network's going to be just tr- straight up, right? Like you don't know when people are going to take you up on it, but when they do, you take advantage of the opportunity because you just found the hole. You know, that's free game, people. I hope you're listening. I hope you're taking notes because... Not gonna find that anywhere else. Um, so let's let's stay let's stay in the career space a little bit longer. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you spent some time at Nike as a digital director of digital brand marketing. Can you talk about a little bit about what that role entailed? Oof, probably one of my favorite roles, man. Um, just taking a step back, I grew up in the '90s, and as I mentioned before, I didn't see myself in, in many places. You know, I definitely didn't see myself at a school. Um, not in the history books and none of that. Um, You turn on the TV and you watch your favorite Nickelodeon shows and you don't see yourself. You certainly see other people and other cultures. Um, And when you do see someone that's Asian American, it's like some very intense stereotype or caricature 
of who you actually are. And you're just like, well, that's not me. And your culture is essentially stripped from you because there's no, there's nothing there. There's nothing there. No one's representing it. And you don't even know where you fit in. But in the nineties and still to this day, the strongest driver of culture. And what I believe is, is honestly the, the, uh, the greatest export um, America has ever had is black culture from music to sport, to fashion, to thought leadership. Um, and I recognized that really quickly by just, by just seeing something that was different than me, but understanding that it spoke to me. You know, I was, I was a huge, huge hip hop head um, back in the mid nineties. I was huge into the NBA, um, mostly because of Michael Jordan uh, and Penny Hardaway. And if you are a fan of those two things, then that means automatically you're probably a fan of Nike because Nike played directly in the intersection between culture and sport and Nike marketing was iconic and it still is iconic, but in the nineties, it was absolutely iconic. No one drove culture harder than Nike. And so I became very much, uh, I fell very much in love with, with Nike and the idea of marketing athletes, marketing athletic apparel, marketing the inspiration behind that. And so through the beginning stages of my career, when I got the chance to work with Nike um, at Facebook, at least I relished in it. I asked all the questions and I actually turns out that I knew more about the athletes. I knew more about the designs, knew more about the fabrications of the shoes and all that stuff. Nora knew more about the history than most people I was working with. And I was like, this is your job. I was like, I could do this better than you. Um, and it turned out that I made a good name for myself by being a good steward of Facebook to Nike that ultimately I got the opportunity to work at Nike, like you said, as a digital director, overseeing the NFL, overseeing the NCAA yeah. and overseeing major league baseball and overseeing uh, men's athletic training. So pretty, a pretty American, uh, swath of, uh, swath of sports. Um, but it spoke to so many of my passions because I got to work with some incredible athletes, some of my favorite athletes, Colin Kaepernick. I don't know if you've seen but that, that cap jersey in my uh, in my office. Um, I launched the first signature shoe uh, in baseball since the Griffies, and that was the Mike Trouts. Um, but I got to essentially get my master's in brand marketing literally by just being in the building in Portland or Beaverton. I got mm. to see the best marketers at work. So then I could hopefully become one of the best marketers. I got to see how they story told. Um, I got to see how they think about design and aesthetics. And I got to get a behind the scenes look at all of those ads that made me fall in love. But the biggest thing that I learned was I never mentioned about two minutes ago when I was falling in love with Nike that I ever saw an Asian athlete. I never mentioned that, right? So I knew that I can add to this legacy and culture by integrating more people of color into my work, whether it be the consumers of the Griffey or the consumers of the Mike Trout shoe, the consumers of, you know, who Colin Kaepernick is talking to, um, who Russell Wilson is talking to, Aaron Rodgers, et cetera, at that time. And I could show a greater range of diversity in my work because I can make that decision. I can make, I can make sure it's just not a black and white conversation, but a whole 
slew of diversity. So then a kid in Moraga growing up or wherever they are can see themselves and they can see that they do belong. And so that was my hopeful contra contribution to that. But, you know, working at Nike was, I mean, dream come true. Yeah, I can only imagine that Nike is one of my favorite brands as well. Um, and you talk about the iconic marketing, the iconic advertising in Nike. I want to make take a slight segue. A lot of people attribute that to Whiting Kennedy. Tell, tell me a little oh, bit yeah. about like the dynamic between Whiting and, you know, uh, Nike's marketing department and how like how, how they work together because a lot of people would like give Wyden like all the credit versus you know it coming from up top and kind of being a director yeah I yeah I mean I've I've, I've heard that plenty of times and, and in my interactions with Wyden um, they are incredible creatives they they think about the world very differently and whether it's the Nike business, the Old Spice business, uh, a lot of people don't know that the Old Spice man was born out of Whiten, mm. um, which that was that was a pretty dope spot. Um, Coca Cola. Uh, I th I'd like to think that the story of Nike is very much about a not just one organization, Nike, but multiple organizations, and to to break culture and to to mold culture, it can't just come from one linear point of view. Like this is the Nike way of doing things. It needs to come from Wyden. It also probably came from RGA and AKQA and all of these other great creative agencies that helped collaborate and shape um, the Nike image over time, right? Obviously Wyden was at the earliest stages, but if you look at the roster of agencies that Nike works with right now, Nike works with literally every single agency on this planet because they know that the greatest ideas can't just come from a, a small place mm -hmm. in Beaverton. They know that it comes from every walk of life across the, across the, the world. And so I look at what Wyden really did was, especially at that time, um, as you're starting to transcend, as you're starting to, to come out of, you know, the, uh, the Madison Avenue mad men type of days, having a massive, powerhouse agency in Portland, Oregon, and not in New York, changed the entire game for eight creative agencies as a whole. That just showed you a creative agency can come from anywhere. A massive creative agency can come, can come from anywhere. And talent, therefore, can come from anywhere. And it's just about understanding the brand so well, the value so well, to help be a thought partner to the people within the brand. Um, and so again, like I, I like to think about it as one holistic organism and a lot of people know, a lot of people that know my work know that I'm a huge, huge agency guy. I love agencies, um, for that reason is, is because listen, I ain't very good. A lot of people <laughs> think I'm good. I ain't very good. I'm, I'm, I'm as good as the people I put around me because I don't know all the answers. I don't know all the ideas and I can't see everything. But I am very good, very, very good at bringing the right people around me that do that can help me find the answers, that can help me, you know, come up with the idea, and that can help me see everything that I need to see. That perspective is a, is is one that I think is held so high at at Nike and at Wyden because it is a collaboration, and you can't just do it in a linear way from one singular, you know, org. No, no, that's. 
that makes all the sense in the world. Um, so I'm gonna put my Town FC hat on for a second. Um, all right. So, do you have any best practices for new sports brands that are help that are building their digital brands? Like, what are some some pointers you can give them? Some best practices, some courses of action, if you will. <laughs> um, know who you're building it for. Be very, very clear on who you're building it for and what you want them to, to see from you. I think many times you see a sports brand come out of the gates and they have a very strong point of view of who they are and what they should mean to you and what they represent. I could tell you right now that's that's a incredibly arrogant and wrong way of, of thinking about things, thinking that you know better than who you're playing for and who you're building for, et cetera. I like to think that you have to put a put a put a brand out there that's uh, I call it fifty percent, sixty percent ready, right? That other forty percent should be molded by the people that are that want to see what you're going to do that want to feel as if they're 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 building it with you. And now what I mean by that are the fans. What I mean by that are your consumers. No one wants to be told what to think and what to do. I think that's a pretty dystopian way of, of doing things. But most brands think, you know what, I'm going to come out of the gates and I'm just going to tell you, this is what you're going to do. This is what you're going to love and whatever. I like to think that, especially sports, that relies so heavily on community engagement, that relies so heavily on fan bases in a region and in a you know, geographic location, community, if you will. Um, you need to build a community. The brand needs to be a community. And as a community, you take input from all kinds of people. You know, you request feedback. And with that, that's essentially them buying into your into your team. That's essentially them buying into your brand. So they they had a they felt like they had a piece in or a fingerprint and that design, that logo, and that color choice, and that the reason why you merchandise the way you do, and I don't think a lot of I don't think a lot of sports brands really get that right because again, like they hire a CMO and they're like, all right, tell me what our brand is going to be and what's going to stand for and how it's going to go to market, and then they, they do without ever consulting who the, who the fan, like what the fans want, right? You know what I mean? If 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 let me you know, um, I'll tell you this example right now. Um, I'm a huge Golden State Warriors fan, season ticket holder um, of, of over 10 years. They didn't ask us if we wanted to get rid of the town jerseys. They didn't ask. They just did it. Like, they didn't ask us, right? And, and then they gave us some, some like, strange thing, you know, like that 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 no one really liked. You know, those, uh, it's, I think it's at Oakland on it, and it looked like the, the We Believe jerseys. No one, no one asked for that. If they would have pulled the community and asked what you wanted to see next, and I honestly think this this should have been the strategy for Nike as they took over the contract, they should have asked. They should always ask the community what you want to see, and they should have a community led jersey. To be fair, right? You should always represent the community. No, they didn't do that. And listen, I I still love the Warriors, but I wish that I would have more equity and in say into what they wear and, and how they represent the team because they, what they represent is the region too. They represent the region, and I love this region. So I think when you're creating a sports brand today, you have to understand that it's a two-way conversation. It's not a one-way conversation ever. Um, and you could try to hide from that. You could try to think that you're better than that, but you're not. 
And if you don't embrace that two-way conversation, someone's going to have a conversations about you regardless of if you want it or not. It's just up to you to lean into that. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, there's definitely a lot to unpack there. I'll go back on the listen back, take my pen and pad out. Um, but one thing that that is a constant is diversity, right? Um, you've even talked about it earlier in our conversation about you know growing up in Moraga where there wasn't a lot of diversity. You didn't see the diversity that reflected you, right? Same thing uh, with um, you know coming into some of these corporate spaces as well. Um, and because of that, you know, you sit on several advisory boards. You know, some of some of which are specifically focused around Af um, Asian American causes. Um, so tell us why the work of these organizations is so important, and why you wanted to get your hands, you know, get your hands dirty with them. It's why you exist. You know, I I, I look at, I mean, just take for example, like the reason I got involved was, um, and I mentioned this before, at least my perception of after the team introduced me to the work, the idea and why it should exist, my perception of it and the way I understood it was this is something that can massively impact the community because it provides a new on-ramp to a sport that is honestly so democratized now. It's like it's a, such a universal sport. Like you go to all walks of life, every corner of the world, and you see this game. And to put it in a place um, like the East Bay and to understand that the town isn't necessarily an isolated region or an isolated you know, uh, geographic location, but instead a mindset, I was like, absolutely. Now we just have to tell that story. And so I think storytelling comes uh, comes into play so strong because it's even before the ball gets kicked, you needed to articulate why this team exists, what it hopes to do, mm -hmm. um, what the vision is for the community and what you hope to see. And we've, we've done a lot of that. And I think through the different conversations we've had, you know, it's just about bringing people along on that journey, bringing people along. So they build emotional equity for the town and again the town isn't necessarily a geographic location it's a mindset so what is that mindset it's about resilience it's about diversity it's about breath right it's about it's about um a scrappiness of of, of a specific like industrial town like like the port of oakland for example um all the way down the delta to antioch right and and i look at i look at what I've heard in many conversations, it's, it's, there's these isolated enclaves of different spots of the East Bay, but one thing can bring them together. And that's, you know, a universal game like soccer. And I think it is about telling that story so that you're not just saying, Hey, we're building a team, come out and, and, and see the game. No, no, no. Tell people why, tell people why you built this team, tell people what it represents, tell people what the soul you know, really, really should matter to you as and, and I think what you'll develop from people is that emotional connection that is unique, and that is hopefully understood in a different way for each and every single person, because then they have a unique identifier to that brand and, and, 
and, and, and to what you're trying to sell. All right, cool. Uh, sorry about that. A little technical difficulties. Good thing it was in between, in between questions. Easy to edit that. Um, all right. So you've managed many campaigns throughout your career. Um, and you've used original content and storytelling often um, in those campaigns. So from the lens of sport, you know, I'm going to put my Town FC hat on again. Um, what are some ways that a new team like the Town FC can leverage storytelling to grow its brand? You know, someone once told me a long time ago, um, your life is separated into two mountains that you need to climb. Um, a lot of people have likened this to many different analogies, but two mountains you need to climb. And the first mountain you climb is, is you. Uh, it's you understanding who you are, making the mistakes, falling down, slipping, and trying to ascend that mountain to, to achieve the version of you that, that you seek to become. And it's, mo it's very selfish, but you focus on your career, you focus on your platform, you focus on you know, who your friends are, building wealth, you know, building success, all that stuff. And through that, you actually build your own platform and confidence in your own voice. And when you start to understand that you have a voice and you have a unique perspective because of all the mistakes and all the good and bad that's happened as you ascended that mountain, you start to realize that you can use that for the community. And that's the second mountain that you probably will climb and never get down for the rest of your life. And only a few people, only not, I wouldn't say a few, but, you can see the people who have conquered their you mountain and ascended their us mountain. You can see who they are, right? Typically, they're presidents. Typically, they're they're great. Um, they're great activists. Typically, they're they're very outwardly facing for for DEI. I think you you've seen a lot of people rise through this larger cultural awakening and ascend the you mountain, um, whether that be through the Me Too movement, whether that be through Black Lives Matter. Uh, whether that be through Stop Asian Hate. And I realized um, a few years back that I was squarely um, descending down my U mountain and, and starting to ascend the us mountain because, yeah, I think for the first 15 years of my career, I've been focused on myself. I've been focused on my portfolio, the brands that I work for, the awards that I've won, um, to wield my industry, the marketing and advertising industry, you know, the way I wanted it to evolve and the way I wanted it to go. Um, but it came to a point in 2020 where, you know, the rise of, of hate, which continues to be an issue, which continues to be a problem and continues to stoke fear in our communities. Um, no one was speaking out about it. So I did specifically to the marketing and advertising community saying that they weren't doing enough, specifically the biggest brands in the world weren't doing enough to support the Asian American community and their employee base. And what that did was that that woke a lot of people up that were in corporate America that that felt that this wasn't their fight, that maybe I should just be quiet. And it took a lot of mentorship and sponsorship from my black friends to say, yo, if you're not going to do it, who will? And originally I, I said no to a lot of things, but they kept pushing and pushing and pushing. They said, the Asian American, the Asian American community needs a leader. And so that's when I, I, I stood up and I, I, I started to speak out. And what came from that was more opportunities, right? To be helpful. Just like I, I mentioned before, to be helpful is super important. And so I joined the board of the Smithsonian Asian Pacific American Center, and we're dedicated to um, 
making sure that we have a place on the National Mall in, D, in, in DC, um, like a museum, right next to the National Museum of African American History and Culture, right next to the, the future National Women's Museum. Um, I am on the board of advisors for the Asian American Foundation, which seeks to be the ADL or the NAACP for the Asian American community. Um, and I'm on the board of, of launch leading Asian Americans to unite for change. But the reality is, is while I'm in a position to, to do things for the Asian American community, I still have to, and I would be remiss to not advocate for all diversity, period, straight up, right? And whether that's, um, whether that's for the black community, the female community, Hispanic community, doesn't matter. I will advocate for all diversity moving forward because the world is colorful and we can't be blind to that. Mo and, and the reality is too, my kids aren't even full Asian. My kids are mixed race. And so I don't just represent half of them. I represent the totality of them and I represent the totality of their friends. And so for me, it's to put myself in these positions of power so I can help. So, so I can be um, more impactful with, with what I do even outside of my job. And so that's why I joined those boards is, is because I wanted to do it in a sustained way. I wanted to do it more so than just hopping on, you know, some Bay area news segment and yelling at the TV, uh, which I did for a very long time. Uh, because I wanted to make sure that, again, I, I can show people that a businessman can go into these boards, these nonprofit boards, and make just as much of a difference as I could in, in, in the, the, the for-profit boards that I'm on. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, and one, one uh, initiative that you just launched recently is Meta Prosper. Can you tell us a little bit about mm -hmm. that? Yeah, for sure. Um, so a lot of people that are in businesses – they're like, you know what, again, like, like, like I told you, for any community, really, um, but specific to the female, the black, and the Asian American community, as these things were unfolding for us over the past, call it six years, um, none of this is shocking to any of us. Like, none of this is new, right? It's just now really visible. But for many of us that are in corporate America, we're like, all right, this isn't really our fight. Like, I don't really see myself marching down Main Street, you know, advocating for rights, but I still feel like I need to help. I still feel like I want to help. And and many times you've been asked to leave yourself at the door when you go into work. That's kind of like the whole vibe of the past, like, I don't know, 100 years. It's like, no, 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 no. This is who you are at the door, and this is who you are at home. Don't bring that, don't bring that, that into this workplace. I mean, that's totally wrong. Um, but I think you're starting to see through this cultural awakening that no one's, no one's down with that. No one's going to do that. I mean, that's, I'm not going to change who I am. You're going to hire me for who I am because you want that perspective. You don't want me to just clock in and clock out and punch some numbers in. You want me to be a catalyst for change. And I think what you've seen from, you know, the communities um, is that they're willing to start to build things internally that don't just help the internal community, but the external community, because a lot of these corporations have a lot of power and influence that can affect change. And I think these businesses want that because the truth of the matter is, whether it's any community that is of color, you're probably one of the fastest, you know, you're, you're probably in there in the ranks of like fastest growing communities in the United States, population wise, or fastest economic power, you know, financially right? Just by sheer numbers. And if you do not, if you do not account for that, and if you do not build for that, 
you're going to miss out on a massive business opportunity for your product and for your business as a whole because you've isolated yourself. So what one of the things that we understood was if you build for the community, you can uniquely talk to them outside of minority months. You know, take, for example, uh, the sister program to Meta Prosper, which I'll introduce, I swear, soon, um, is Meta Elevate. And Meta Elevate is dedicated to the black and brown communities, small businesses, creators, nonprofits, et cetera. And that is a year-round conversation in which they're actively investing in the community. They're actively providing training to the community. They're actively helping digitize the community of the black and brown communities. We, we knew once that was built, that would set a tremendous precedent for how businesses interact with the black and brown community past February. And that's what needed to happen. I mean, even, even before that, most people didn't even celebrate Juneteenth, nor did they know what, what Juneteenth actually was, right? Now you have perpetual programs educating people, bringing people along so that they, they, they develop more empathy and they develop more perspective. And so when things started happening to the Asian American community, you know, myself and, and a few others, we, we, saw the, we saw the opportunity to say, you know what? I think it's necessary for us to continue to contribute to the Asian American community past the month of May, past Lunar New Year. Um, and what does it look like? And so because of the great work done by the Black community internally at Meta, um, we took we saw the infrastructure from Meta Elevate and said, here's, here's how we can build this uniquely for the Asian American community. And that's how Meta Prosper was born. Meta Prosper is the sister program to Meta Elevate. And we are dedicated to serving the Asian American um, the Asian American Pacific Islander community every single day, because we, it's not just one month that we matter. It's not just one month that, that we're listening. Um, it's every single day, it's every single month. And to be fair, that's what needs to be done. And I mentioned all of that pre-story beforehand, because the truth of the matter is if you turn on the TV right now and you see what's happening in the Asian community, there has been an unfair painting of what's happening between the black community and the Asian community that continues to think that we are always at strife. The truth of the matter is there's so much allyship, there's so much work and collaboration done between both those communities every single day that the media never actually acknowledges. And I try to acknowledge that by the success of Meta Prosper by saying we do not achieve success, we do not achieve what we have so far which is we've been to the White House, we've been to the floor of the Senate, we've been to all these places. We do not achieve any of that if it weren't for the Black community. And I think that's what continues to, to irk me about this, this, this moment in time is that the American media continues to, to paint the ugly, to show the isolated and not the good. And the good is there every single day. This conversation is a part of the good. You know what I mean? And Meta Prosper is really dedicated to not just taking and collaborating with the black and brown communities, but opening the door for the next community to walk through so that we can all hold hands and make sure that we are affecting change under the umbrella and under the badge of Meta. Yeah, no, 100%. That's a, a very, very important program uh, that you launched there because visibility is, is important for everybody, right? We talk about, mm -hmm. you know, DEI, it's kind of a diversity, equity, and, and inclusion for those who aren't familiar. It's kind of a, I don't want to call it a buzzword, but it's, it's something that's been, um, thankfully, 
pushed to the forefront and it's been given given a lot more awareness. Um, and one place where we see a lot of that now is in sport. Um, so, yeah. you know, when we talk about, you know, DEI and it's often framed around access for inclusion around like African-Americans and gender equality and that type of thing. And we don't typically see Asian-Americans, Pacific Islander community included in, as loudly in those conversations, as you mentioned before. Um, so talk about, you know, your work as an advocate um, in the, actually you did just talk about that, sorry. Uh, but <laughs> um, talk about, Talk about that from a, a sport sporting perspective. Like you don't, you don't. Sure. I mean, it's changing, right? I, I think that I think that you know when you think about us and when you think about the Asian American community in sports, you think about like isolated individuals, mm-hmm. right? Like Yao Ming, Jeremy Lin. You think about Colin Morikawa in golf. You think about um, Shohei Otani in baseball. Um, it's isolated. It's totally isolated. And that's because it's a rarity. And I think what you're seeing right now, and I think what you'll see over the next coming years is one, an increase and influx of Asian American athletes come into these sports um, where we're not like this token thing where we're like, oh yeah, oh, like you're the next Jeremy Lin or you're the, you're the next Shohei Otani. It's like, no, 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 no. There's like, no one says like they're the next like XYZ athlete that is highly represented, you know, in, in, in major sports. But because we're, we're, it's, it's so small of a number, your mind naturally goes to that. But I do think in, in the coming years ahead, I do think you're going to see more and more Asian American and Pacific Islanders go into these sports um, to increase representation because one, and this is cultural, one, I think a lot of parents are starting to see, oh, wait, like if you are, you can, if you can excel in, in athletics, you can have a very successful career, whether that's, again, you are the athlete or you are in the organization. Mm-hmm. And so you're going to see more and more people join uh, the organization. I, I think the immigrant dream of you being a doctor is 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 a or, or just a lawyer is is slowly being diversified, which is a good thing. I think the second thing is too, it's that you're starting to see a significant rise in uh, multiracial athletes, mm-hmm. Black and Asian, um, Latino and Asian, etc. Which is beautiful because my kids are Jewish and Asian, um, so I love to see mixed race athletes because then I can show my kids, look is you. And that makes me really happy. Um, but I think you're going to, you're starting to see that more and more and you're starting to see like the best of all of these worlds come together through these athletes, you know, whether it's Naomi Osaka, for example, iconic, um, or, you know, or you're, you're starting to see that everywhere and then not just tennis. So, so yeah, I, I think that that time is changing and the New York times has predicted probably going to happen before that, that the quote unquote minority communities of the United States will become the majority by 2042. That is 20 years from now. That's minutes from now. Mm-hmm. And I think what the way that it's going to happen is the continuation and melting pot of all of our of, of all of these kids, right? All these kids, they they grow up and you know, fall in love with who you fall in love with. And through that comes sick athletes, you know? <laughs> And I think that's, I think that's just gonna, I think that's just gonna continue to accelerate that. And, and eventually, and I hope, I hope this is true. Eventually they, they're not going to need a hyphen, 
between all of their all of their ethnicities. Oh, I'm African American, African hyphen American. I'm Asian hyphen American. Eventually, what those kids will look like and what those athletes will look like is just straight up American. Period. Right. That's it. They won't need some hyphenated ethnicity beforehand. And I and I do think that is coming for sure. All right. No, that's definitely the truth. Um, and kind of staying on that a little bit, going down to more of like a grassroots level, right? Um, talk about using soccer as an example, um, conversations around creating access, you know, you have the creating access for African-American and Latino communities, but the um, Asian-American Pacific Islander community, once again, gets overlooked, um, especially when it comes to sports like soccer and things like that. Um, so do you know of any organizations in the Bay Area, any clubs that are doing the work to grow the game in the Asian community? I don't. Um, I, I really don't. I think that's a huge issue. I, you know, I, a lot of people think, a lot of people have this misconception that the Asian American community is hyper successful, hyper wealthy. Mm -hmm. But what people don't understand on a numbers basis is that the, the wealth disparity in the Asian community is actually the worst in the United States. We, we represent certainly um, a level of socioeconomic success, but we also represent the highest levels of poverty. Mm -hmm. um, and the reason is, 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 is because of um, the uh, non-disaggregation of the population. They think that all Asian, make it, all Asian Americans are the same. Um, and because of that, you don't automatically assume that Asian Americans need on ramps to sports like soccer, um, but we do. We do need on ramps in many in many um, areas of need. I think that the access to sport is so low in certain um, in certain you know harder hit socioeconomic areas that they just don't know where to begin. They have no idea where to begin, or they don't they don't know any education about the game, and so. The sad thing is I don't know of any organization that's doing it right now. Um, I hope one exists to hopefully reach out to me and, and, and educate me about it. Um, but I also hope that's what we're building. No, for sure. Um, and kind of stay on what you were mentioning about creating on-ramps. How, how do you think we can create an on-ramp for the Asian community to grow its presence in the game? Representation. I think representation is so key. I mean, the whole reason why Meta Prosper exists is is, is off, of, off of a really strong insight that 90% of the company's outbound creative and copywriting is in English only, when the reality is most of the Asian American communities, especially the closer you get from when you immigrated here, English is second language or English is not even on the radar, you know? And that's, and that's fine, but if you want to reach these communities, you have to speak with them, not at them and assume that they only speak English. So I think the first thing is just representation. And so that's why MetaProsper, we've translated all our content into six languages, right? So that one, we could show them that, hey, we're here to speak with you. I think the second thing too, is the minute that they see that they feel seen, kind of like what I said all the way in the beginning, if I felt seen, I would feel more belonging. And that's such a key thing. And so when I think about an on-ramp, they need to see people like me, you need to see people like you, need to see people that represent their own communities. If they if they see some idealistic version of what they think the sport is, it's never going to resonate. They need to hear the stories. They need to hear the struggles. They need to hear what we came from, you know, the journeys in order for them to say like, oh, yeah, 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 I, that, that vibes with me. 
that vibes with me and that's that I see myself in that journey. And then they, they have the on ramp. So I think representation in, in totality and understanding the nuances of what representation actually means, language, et cetera, um, is so important. No, a hundred percent. So as we wrap up here, uh, one last question. So what impacts are you looking forward to making through the town FC? I mean, obviously, I, I I want I want there to be more of an emphasis on the region for sure. I think the region has been harder hit from sports because sports teams have left the region, which I'm not a super big fan of. Um, and the the region deserves that. The region deserves. You know all the things that that come with having a sports team the economics the the community aspect the the benefits of that um so i am hoping for that i am also hoping that more people again see themselves in what we're building you know i i i have a dream of eventually owning or being a part owner of a sports team um or a sports franchise and hopefully by doing that you know, people see me as, you know, a part East Asian and Southeast Asian person, you know, from, you know, from, from middle-class beginnings to do what I do, right. To say like, oh, that's, I don't want to be an attorney. I don't want to be a doctor. I want to be a businessman. Um, or even to the point where, even to the point where more kids just embrace the sport and the idea of how the sport brings so many cultures together the sport requires not a ton of language if you really think about it. you watch the world cup there's like 50 different languages happening at once on one field if you watch the premier league that's like on one team alone that's like 50 languages that could be that, that could be being spoken at once right but you don't need to it's 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 all about feel it's all about touch it's all about trust and I think that last point, that trust that you're going to pass to your teammate who probably, who may not speak English, but they know this game and you know that, that they'll take the ball where, where they need to go. That trust transcends bias. That trust transcends, again, like, um, like how you see people on face value. And that trust is what we need more of in this world. And so unlike many other sports where it requires you to speak the same language it requires you to be from the same place or requires you to have you know genetic abilities that are that are relatively the same this game is so highly democratized and so highly accessible it's just about understanding how do you put it in the most accessible ways so that everybody can play it everybody can join it's not hard to understand how amazingly fun and beautiful that's why they call it the beautiful sport that's why how beautiful it is to to not need to to not need to to be from the same place to speak the same language just to kick the ball to each other that's our show for this week thank you for tuning in please subscribe rate and review it helps us get discovered follow us on the socials at the town underscore fc Stay up to date on important news around the club by signing up for our Town Chronicles newsletter at thetownfc.com. And as always, tweet us your comments on the show, any topics you want us to discuss, and more. Peace out.